You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we get going, I want to give you a quick word from our sponsor, Audible. No one has more books read aloud than Audible. 180,000. 180,000. 180,000. Hell of a lot of books. It's a lot of books. Uh, People who listen to the show are probably the kind of people who uh, like books and like uh, listening things aloud on their commute and what have you. So uh, I suggest they go over to audiblepodcast.com slash longform. What's that URL? audiblepodcast.com slash longform you'll get a 30-day free trial as a listener to the show you'll also be supporting the show everyone will win here's the show thanks audible hello and welcome to the longform podcast i'm aaron lammer to my right max linsky of longform to my left evan ratliff of the atavist hello aaron hey who's on the show this week leah finnegan um People probably know her most from her tenure at Gawker. She left Gawker and is now at Genius, annotating the news. Uh, We talked about that. We talked about her departure from Gawker, which was amid this article that went up and got taken down and uh, interactions around ads and what's acceptable in terms of posting stuff. Very interesting discussion. Yeah. She's seen a lot. She left after Gawker became nice Gawker. Yes. Because she didn't want to become nice Gawker. Literally, we talk about this. <laughs> Great. She said that she was incapable of becoming 20% nicer. <laughs> so um, I found her quite nice, though, and I hope, I hope, uh, I hope listeners will uh, as well. Well, Aaron, if you wanted to uh, find more nice people in the world, how would you do that? I mean, I find that uh, email is full of um, good vibes. Courtesy. Exclamation points. It is. Like... I think that, that email is a nicer internet, and uh, there's no there's no monkey out there nicer than the Mailchimp monkey. <laughs> so true, so true. Uh, over eight lovable million, little chimp. Over over eight. We've we've done over 180 Mailchimp promos without even mentioning the Mailchimp monkey. But it's deep in my dreams because, in addition to supporting this show for years and being a rock in our universe. They've also mailed me a bunch of these really comfortable t-shirts that my girlfriend sleeps in. And so I see that MailChimp monkey all the time. You're basically in bed with MailChimp. I have so many connections to MailChimp. Oh, I got another plug while we're at it. Yeah, talk about it. Uh, We got a new Atavis Magazine story out. It's at magazine.atavis.com. It's by Mitch Moxley. It's called Sunk. It's about uh, a giant uh, Chinese movie production for a movie called Empires of the Deep, which was supposed to be like Avatar, but made in China with international stars, except they weren't stars and the whole thing fell apart, and it's incredible. Mitch Moxley, our office mate. Mitch Moxley has been telling me about this story. He's, a, he's an understated man, yeah. and he could not contain how crazy this story yeah, is. Yeah, if, if Mitch is plugging it, it's got to be very good, because I don't think he's ever plugged anything to me. The ten like top 10 most animated times I've seen Mitch Moxley have all been talking about this story. Shouts to Mitch Moxley. Uh, Here am am I with Leah Finnegan. Welcome, Leah Finnegan. Thank you. You've kind of had an unusual journey to end up as the news editor of the former rapgenius.com. You started at The Times. Is that your first journalism job? I started at The Huffington Post. Ah, okay. So... I was in grad school at Columbia for journalism, and uh, I got offered a job at the Huffington Post, so I 
dropped out of grad school. And a funny story is that they somehow mistakenly sent me my degree. So oh, wow. I have a degree from Columbia in journalism, but I didn't graduate. Are you at all worried that someone from Columbia Journalism School could be listening to this and, and go back into your files? Um, yes, sure. But, uh, you know, my mom framed the degree. Yeah, she's not going to give it back. Right. It's in, it's in a suburb of Chicago that shall not be named. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. You know, they're not getting it back. You can't take that away from your mom. They're, it's signed by Lee Bollinger. So what was go, like? What was going on with you that you were ready to get out of um, Columbia Journalism School? Well, the thing with journalism school is that, you know, you can either pay to do journalism or yeah. you can get paid to do it. So just, yeah. you know, I'm not an economist, but it just seemed like a better deal to get paid, you know, $13 an hour to do it at the Huffington Post, which, you know, at the time was like kind of a a scrappy organization with like less than 100 employees in a loft in Soho. You know, they still like hand edited Alec Baldwin's blogs. And I remember from that period, I don't know if this was true, but someone who was in, in, in your graduating class of the Huffington Post um, told me that if you if you left an italic open, it could turn the entire site into italics <laughs> at that point. Um, yes, that like the CMS, I remember, was like very intense and it was like super, super brilliant. Like it was all like Jonah Peretti in his like early years and or there were like several choices for uh, headline size on the front page and like one of the choices for a really big headline was holy shit like that that was just <laughs> what it was called. So you you had come from a background you were the editor of your college newspaper. Yes, the Daily Texan at the University of Texas and I kind of fell into that accidentally because I transferred to Texas and um, I had no friends and uh, nothing to do and I was very depressed. So I started... This is how most people end up in journalism. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. So I started writing for the newspaper and, you know, getting $10 a week to write a column was like, you know, it was really fun. And then an associate editor on the paper had a an internet gambling addiction, so he was fired. And then the editor at the time was like, do you want to be an associate editor because you have good grammar? And like, you know, this might be fun for you. So I was like, yeah, sure, you know, sounds fun. And then I was like, oh, like, I can get paid to do this really fun thing, like writing and editing, like, this is amazing. You know, it's kind of like discovering capitalism. (laughs) Whereas, like, I had been going to a liberal arts college where... I was planning on, like, majoring in anthropology and becoming a professor, which, you know, I kind of shudder to think where I'd be now. When you, as a, um, you know, former editor of this college newspaper, you're in journalism school, I imagine that the early Huffington Post didn't look exactly like what the journalism um, education complex told you that a publication you were going to work for looked like. I mean, what was that like, sort of like transitioning to a real, like, nascent technology blog empire. It felt like it was the beginning of something huge. Yeah. It was amazing to be 23 there and have an unchecked amount of power. I mean, I was the editor of the college page, and so I would just make up top 10 lists. Yeah. That's that's what I did because slideshows were great for traffic, this is when like page views were the metric to that everyone was measured by. So we did like I would do, you know, slideshows, just pictures of colleges every day. Like, but um, I just I made up the top ten hipster colleges. I just made like I made it up based on my own ranking of hipster you, colleges. You probably changed like a bunch of kids' life right, with like, that that list. I I said Grinnell was the most hipster college in the nation and I think their application rate went up by 30%. Wow. What did you what did you do when you left Huffington Post? Uh so while I was at the Huffington Post, I had um a fellowship to go to Egypt to work at the AP and like I had been putting this off cuz I had this job Loving and post, and uh, the Arab Spring just like happened, and I was like, "Oh, like now would be a good time to go to Cairo," and um, like that was really like a turning point because that was 
like real journalism, not <laughs> aggregation, <laughs> not like like top ten hipster colleges of Cairo. Yeah, like. you're kind of like a like maybe like a like a mid temperature pool between that like hot tub and right. ice ice cold water there. Right. So so what was it like being dropped into the Arab Spring from the aggregation world? Well, the like the AP newsroom was really really interesting because it was an actual war room. Like, it was super stressed out, and, like, the journalists there are, you know, amazing and very professional and, like, bilingual and working 24-7 to cover the entire region. And, uh, like, they absolutely did not want to deal with an intern, which was, you know, what I was. So I was just like, is there any way I can help? Like, I feel like this is like the like setting for like a like wacky comedy. It's like it kind of was the like, intern at the Arab Spring. <laughs> like uh, the bureau chief was this grizzled correspondent who had been uh, in Iraq like when Saddam died. Like he was the first reporter there, and I was like, you know, what should I do? And he was like, well, you can go to Tahrir Square, but. You know, if it gets messy, just leave. And I was like, okay. <laughs> was it hard to go back to um, ranking hipster colleges when you returned? Well, after that, like, I returned and I was like, I, I need to move on. Yeah. So. I no longer can <laughs> um, help Grinnell. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm always curious about how these different kinds of experience come off to employers. Yeah. because. There's something about the the aggregation internet world and then the reported internet world that feels a little bit like when you give like a stand-up comic a sitcom. They're related, like many people end up having both jobs, but they they're strange bedfellows. I mean, the New York Times was really I mean, they're really interested in anyone who has internet experience. Mm-hmm. So the you know, working at HuffPo was an advantage. And I think I interviewed at the Times for like four months. It was like, you know, trying to get into the CIA and, you know, for numerous different jobs. Yeah. And just like kind of like begging and being like, please, please. (laughs) And uh, eventually you were successful. Yeah. Yeah. And that and I was like, I'm going to work here forever. Yeah. Until I'm dead. How did that work out? It didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Did you easily at least have like one year of feeling like you could work there forever or was it pretty immediate that you knew you wouldn't work there forever? I, it was like a slow realization, I think, because it's, you know, it's not a place that is is super receptive to upward mobility of, of like very young people. Right. Is that something that is a tension with younger people working there yeah definitely definitely and like I was hired in like a class of like young assistants and you know we are all kind of told like don't expect to like move up here like you should leave and come back and you know I was never really sure if it was like a mind game or if it was like the truth like a lot of it is like political jujitsu right and some of it is just like discouragement it's like S&M where did you want to get at that point? Like, where was it that you wanted to get that you felt like you couldn't get at the New York Times? That's a good question. I mean, probably the, like, the half of it was that I didn't know. Like, yeah. you want to, like, be able to write what you want, which is not really a possibility at the Times because, like, everything is so entrenched in a specific style. Right. And, like, you're not going to get to be editor because you can only be that when you're 60. And what was it that you wanted to write at that point? Just like anything. Yeah. Like, you know, they were experimenting with blogs. Yeah. And, um, you know, doing like more like free writing. And I did like some reported pieces, but I was always just kind of like, this is weird. Well, it's it's interesting when you, um, like I was on... I was on your Twitter before you came in here. Oh, interesting. I was I was looking at your Twitter. Did you see all the pictures of Justin Bieber? Uh, I saw a couple pictures of Justin Bieber, yeah. I, well, I was looking for actually links um, because I know that you have this initiative, and I, I want to talk about this in a bit, at Genius of sort of annotating web pages. Right. And I was like, where can I find some of these web pages? And the easiest way to find them was um, reading back through your Twitter mm-hmm. and seeing ones that you had annotated. But what I noticed was... 
like I know your work primarily from Gawker, mm -hmm. from the time you spent at Gawker. Mm -hmm. And when I look at the sensibility of like your Twitter and I look at that period of Gawker, I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see how that same person did like made this stuff. Like mm -hmm. I can see how you edited these pieces, mm -hmm. how you talk to these writers. When I see that Twitter and I imagine you working at the New York Times, I'm like, oh, that, that, that might seem like kind of discordant, <laughs> you know? Um, but but there are people, you know, I, I think of people like uh, Jenna Wortham who, who right. do kind of like bridge yeah. that that gap but yeah. it's it's new and it's unique that yeah. there are people with those kind of voices for you at what point did you realize like actually that thing i'm like doing on twitter that's kind of more like what i'm like than a person who's going to like wait 45 years to become editor at the new york times i think probably when i got to gawker i was like oh i am a person yeah i am not like a brand yeah I cannot bow to a brand. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm going to pause things here briefly for a word from our sponsor, Squarespace. Max, Squarespace, they helped me put up those websites so fast. Yes, I, uh, there's been uh, many occasions in which we've needed a website. It's been uh, on your to-do list. It's uh, stayed on your to-do list. Okay, okay, okay. So Squarespace <laughs> has a simple, intuitive process to put up a website. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. No code necessary. Plus, you get a free custom domain if you sign up for a year. That is excellent. It's a good deal. You get that free custom domain. You put a beautiful template on it. You are good to go. All of a sudden, you look like a pro. Our Listeners, go to squarespace.com and enter code LONGFORM. You will get 10% off your first purchase, and you will be supporting this show. Squarespace, set your website apart. Here we are back with Leah Finnegan. Were you hired at Gawker as a features editor? I was hired as a, as a senior editor. A senior then, editor, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm always curious. I kind of understand what a newspaper editor does. Mm -hmm. I understand less what an editor at Gawker does every day sure, and, sure. and what the relationship between a URL produced on the Gawker domain and the person who is uncredited as that editor of that yeah, domain yeah. really is. I mean, you know, if you ask like Nick Denton, he thinks like an editor at Gawker copies and pastes text into a box and presses publish. Right. Which was like one fundamental problem with the site. Yeah. But uh, like my main responsibility at the site was editing and I was editing like 70, 80 percent of the time and writing the other percentage of the time. And, you know, at, at while I was at the Times, um, I worked on the opinion desk and I edited op-eds yeah. fairly frequently. And um, a lot of the times, like, we would have pitch meetings and I would have ideas that were, like, too weird for the Times or too just off the path. Mm -hmm. And, like, a lot of those ideas I got to do at Gawker. Did you just keep a file of them? Like, I'll, I'll <laughs> yeah. get them someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm going to file that away and I will. <laughs> you guys, it's gonna hipster be... <laughs> college rankings. <laughs> <laughs> like, Grinnell. <laughs> I'm, I'm always sort of curious as to when something has that kind of volume, like, where, where are all those ideas coming from? When you need to, what's, what is a Gawker post? 20 posts a day? Like 40. 40 posts well, a day? Yeah, now it's like four. Like how much friction is there between uh, the idea and the post when you're trying to hit 40 a day? And that's basically in like an eight or 10 hour like main window. Yeah, so you're talking yeah. about like one every 15 to 30 minutes, yeah. say? Yeah, I mean... I would be working on like longer posts, like, you know, 1,000 to 3,000 words and doing like two, one to two of those a week. And those yeah. take like a few weeks of editing. Yeah. And, you know, from conception to completion, it's a long process like yeah. to make that good. The biggest post I did there was a takedown of this blogger called The Food Babe. Um, and I found another blogger called The Science Babe. And I was just like rip this food babe apart. Like she spews pseudoscience and like everything she says is wrong. And so this the science babe just like took her down in this really glorious fashion. And that like I was like, oh, maybe this will get like 80,000 hits. Like yeah. it's, it's pretty good. Like I like reading it. I, yeah. I feel pretty good about it. It got five million hits. So yeah. that was that was like enormous for Gawker. Are you thinking that with like with every with every post? 
that you're as an editor like behind are you like oh this is like a this is like a 40 45 like thousander and are you thinking like if I have like one weird one that's like a ten thousander, I need like a I need a, a big yeah, one to sort sure. of like balance it yeah, out. Yeah. yeah. Does that warp your brain over the long run? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe in a good way. I don't yeah. know. Once you're like deep deep in the page views, like are you kind of thinking like I got to start like thinking of good high page view ideas? There's no formula for like what's gonna hit. Yeah. There's no guarantee. And you're kind of riding the news cycle also, right? right? Because it's like, just because you had the story you described, it's not like you can be like, damn, I need another like scammy food blogger right, to like pop right. up so I can take her down. Right, right, right. It's just like, what is a phenomenon? Like you're only going to get one five million person post right. a year. And like in the scheme of things, like, like that was one of the biggest posts on the internet last year. Yeah. And five million isn't even that much. No. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm guessing if we went back and look at the scale of these, like, Huffington Post days, right. like, it would be like, yeah, we got, f- like, 10,000 hits right, on that story. Right, I mean, right. there's this kind of constant inflation of the page view. Right. I don't even think, like, I always, I always actually sort of notice that you, even in the New York Times coverage now, you see, like, page views yeah. and, like, YouTube plays cited as signs of popularity. And a lot of times I'm like, they're like, after that, he was a viral success. His video got 220,000 views. And I was like, that's not really very many views. Yeah. You know? I mean, what like one of my uh, duties when I worked at the Times was to tabulate page views for the opinion section, like using this really archaic program. And they didn't want me to email the page views, the page view like roundup to people because they didn't want it to be forwarded because mm. they didn't want anyone knowing how many page views their pieces got. So in Gawker... Gawkerland, those numbers are public. Like right, you can basically right. tap into the back end of Gawker and look right. at page views. And the page views are on the page. Right, they're on the page. There's a little fireball and it and says how many page page views. The, it is. the editors are ranked by. I mean, I, I guess I'm just like, how does that feel? Like, how does it feel to be ranked with your other employees? Uh, you know, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel good. <laughs> but yeah. like, and like, there is always like ambient tension over traffic yeah it's like how can we get more traffic and now like right now it's interesting because there's a conversation like everyone's stressed about traffic like everyone's like traffic is down traffic is down traffic is down everywhere so i'm like maybe like a sect of people died off and we just don't know about it like or maybe we hit the like traffic (laughs) ceiling you know what i mean but i'm interested in it seems to me that that kind of an experience of working somewhere like Gawker is a more personal experience than working somewhere like the New York Times. You're putting a certain amount more of your own person right. yeah, on the sure, line sure. by yeah. doing it, yeah. um, both in the like, I can see exactly what your job performance is like. It's right. on the Internet right. as yeah. relative to your coworkers. Yeah. But it also seems like when there is a blowback you know, you can say pretty confidently, like, at least one story that Gawker posts every year, there's going to be, like, a right, significant right, blowback. Right. A lot of that falls directly on the writer. Yes. The writer is more <laughs> vulnerable. Right. I mean, how does that change the equation when you're sort of being asked to get 20 or 40 things up as an editor? Yeah. But if one of those things explodes, like, the explosion could be a traffic explosion or it could be a shit storm explosion (laughs) or both simultaneously yeah like gawker is so it's so crazy because it's like you know your picture is there yeah and like you're like you're very very like exposed and people are like they just like automatically hate you for working there which is like kind of cool like (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like a combative environment and like all day you're just like throwing punches and it's like you know it's a very like us versus them mentality like we called it like a pirate ship like gawker is the pirate ship and like you're very like everyone who works there is like very bonded together which is you know not how it is really at any other place i've worked there's not that sense of camaraderie does that sense of us versus them and camaraderie extend to the bad times like does do people stick by each other when yeah. the shitstorm yeah. starts yeah yeah definitely definitely yeah. and like when i took the job at gawker i was like well i know this will probably end badly i will 
probably get fired, but yeah. you know, this seems like fun and yeah. like I'm like I really like Max Reed, so I'm going to do it. What was it about it that you knew it would probably end badly? Because <laughs> like, every editor has gotten every, fired. Right. Yeah. yeah. And like with that, like his or her staff like gets the boot right. as well. So, you know, I knew like going in as an ally of Max's that yeah. if he left, I would be gone too. Right. And like he was like four months into his editorship when I started. So he had about like a year, a year and a half left. And yeah, yeah sure enough, he got... He left it exactly a year later. And wh- I mean, what does that do to the social relationships among the people who are working there when the when the house is constantly getting cleaned out, and you know, one person's coming in as someone else is reaching their one year termination there, point? I mean, there's a lot of post traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I think this is this is kind of my secret belief that we're gonna find out like um, this kind of like style internet publishing is like terrible terrible like emotional abuse and oh, all these yeah people, like, absolutely because like I, I mean i said as a joke but i also like you know for every like internet outrage storm there is like a like a person out there and i yeah. i kind of wonder about the collateral damage like going both directions of just like people constantly being like you're terrible you know yeah totally totally i mean um like leah finnegan mean is a is a google search term and it's just like <laughs> from Gawker, and I'm yeah. just like, whoa! Like that. I mean, like I'm from the Midwest. Like I'm, yeah. I'm really nice in person. Yeah. But like, w- at what point did did it turn dark for you? Like when when did the the good times end? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, there like I mean, like I said, there was always ambient tension because like when you're working with an unpredictable British millionaire, yeah. you don't really know like what his next move is going to be, and like. That that was like the good part of Gawker's, like you only have this one owner, so yeah. you're not beholden to Putin's interests, which right. they might be now. I don't know, but you are also, you know, if whatever he wants, like he gets. It's his company, right? Like you're kind of lucky to work there, and that he pays you to do this ridiculous thing, which is like blog. Yes, make make little blogs about the media. The piece that I know that um, sort of precipitated your exit from Gawker was this uh, Mm -hmm. uh, story about a married heterosexual executive for a media company having uh, liaisons with a possibly um, mentally ill male escort who revealed his correspondence. Is that a decent summary of the article? Right. He was um, paying this man allegedly for prostitution. And there was some sort of vaguely extortionate kind of stuff in the right. emails of the man right. sort of demanding money for, for his silence. Right. Now, when I tried to sort of reconstruct, like I, I kind of like looked around the internet and I was like trying to reconstruct like exactly right. how this whole thing went down. And I have my own views on it and I won't, I won't try to be too opinionated because I'm actually curious about how something like that looks from the inside. Yeah. But from the outside, I was kind of like, that does kind of seem like something that Nick Dunn would publish. Like it's the kind of thing that like I can imagine in the very first incarnation of Gawker, like that's the kind of controversial material that like is like, right. wow, other people wouldn't do it, but I would do it. Right. And then it came out now and people were kind of like, this is hideous. Right. And there was a kind of weird sort of like, wait, but I thought I was supposed to pick whatever pull quote for the back that I wanted kind of moment about it where right. he was sort of saying like, this isn't what we do. Right. And anyone who'd been paying attention would be like, eh, it's kind of similar to at least what you used to do. Right. I mean, how did like from from within, how does that feel when you're kind of not sure what the line is and you're both being encouraged to test lines and also have personal repercussions for crossing them it was super confusing like it was a total shit show and like no one knew what was going on and there were like secret meetings and like secret ballots and like everyone was like i'm resigning i'm resigning no i'm resigning no i'm resigning and i was like what is going on part of the reason i i went to gawker was like that spirit of wanting to fuck shit up like being into gossip, wanting to talk about things that people didn't necessarily want to talk about. And, like, the stories that come to mind are, like, Bill Cosby and, like, the recurring, like, rumors about, like, Louis C.K. and, like, Fred Armisen, like, just, like, 
you know, men who do gross things and, like, there are rumors that maybe have truth to them, but, yeah. like, the Times would not report on them. Yeah. Because they can't, like, really nail it down, but yeah. Gawker will report on them. And, you know, I think that that spirit is is really important, like, saying what what no one else will say, just so it's out there and, like... But couldn't you say that Donald Trump is also saying what no one... I mean, like, I okay, let's take that Louis C.K. example. Yeah. As I recall, the story was basically some guy said his friend was in a lock, was in a backstage with Louis C.K. and he whipped out his dick yeah. and asked her to do something with it, something to that effect. Yeah. And I remember reading that and being like, this is a pretty weird and thin story right. when I read it. Like, even for a, like allegation like it, it was kind of unclear it was like and then i like told him to call me but he call, he didn't call me back but he left me a message it was like it was like a guy telling you at a story at a bar about how he had confronted louis ck was kind of how i took it why are you driven to pursue a story like that because especially in instances of of sexual assault people don't believe victims like this is coming up with again right now with woody allen right. like Everyone's like, Woody Allen's amazing. Oh, he didn't do anything. Oh, right. did he? I don't know. And it's like, like, how many times do we have to, like, ask this question? Like, his daughter wrote an essay in the New York Times saying that he did this. Yes. He's a creep. So I totally agree with you, except one of, one of those stories yes, is yes. a well, guy in a bar told me. Another right. one is dozens of people, including my own daughter... And they're on, like, the record. I can tell you who these people right. are. That's the primary difference is, like, to me, where do you draw the line on the other kind of story? With, like, with the Louis C.K. thing, it's, like, we're trying to, like, encourage people to speak out. And this is what publishing that does. And that's what happened with Bill Cosby. Tom Skoka wrote a post that was basically, like, Bill Cosby is a creep. Yes. And then, like, Hannibal Burris spoke out about it. And then, like, more victims started coming forward. Right. Like, New York Magazine wrote their story. And then, like, now Bill Cosby's over. I understand the narrative of the Bill Cosby incident. Right. And I understand right. the narrative of the Woody Allen incident. It's like, how many stories do you have to hear about a person? I guess as a reader, I'm kind of like, some of these things don't match the other things. Right. And the case uh, that we're talking about of this Condé Nast executive, right. it seems like was divisive about um, within the staff about what camp that fell into. Right. What were your own feelings about it? The story obviously needed to be reported out more. Yeah. The gay angle, I think, came off really badly. You know, I thought it was interesting that, like, an executive at Condé Nast where there are, like, always cutbacks and layoffs is, like, spending thousands of dollars on prostitutes. Like, that would have been a better angle. Right. But we didn't do that angle. Right. That's my own media criticism of yeah. that story. What was the sort of feeling once that that story was then pulled off of the internet, I think in about 24 hours? Yes, that story was taken down. And how did you feel about that? I thought that was terrible. Yeah. Like, nothing should be taken down. Like, this is not, like, Russia. Yeah. Don't take a story down. I guess I'm sort of curious as to what you think about what should be done if something does get published, mm. but either it was wrong to publish right. it. Like, because especially in that 20 or 40 posts a day, I mean, right. like when I when when that happened, I guess I was like, oh, yeah, like shocking. Like the trigger got pu <laughs> like pulled, right. you know, right. like the trigger, the trigger finger has to be pretty, pretty loose to keep up that kind of a, a publishing yeah, schedule. Sure. And so the looser the trigger finger, the higher chance of something. Not that's just an error, like we pissed people off, but like actually even our internal standards have in some ways right. been sort of violated by right. something like that. How do you think that could be like handled better? Because I think a lot of people who are publishing rapidly on the internet right now, like it's not the only time when it's going to be like, ooh, uh, maybe we didn't do that exactly right. Right. I think places publish like way more than they need to. Yeah. And I don't know why like they feel like they need to do so much volume. It's like an expression of some stress. Yeah. I mean, you sort of wonder like at, the, at a meeting if you ever said like, 
how about instead of posting 40 things, what if we published the 20 best? What exactly right. is the pushback right. on saving the worst 50% of, of right. the publishing cycle? And like most people aren't like sitting at their computers like refreshing yeah. Twitter. Yeah. It's mainly just for like media people to for them to have like grist to talk about. Right. And I guess that's like – I'm sorry. I keep coming back to this sort of like Louis C.K. thing, but I'm yeah. interested because like to, when I read something like that, yeah. I'm just giving you my like honest feeling. Sure. Like, it's like that's grist to me. Yeah. To me, when you're like a guy at a bar, like I had this one guy who says this thing, it's a little bit like the the Donald Trump bait and switch where it's yeah. kind of like insinuating that you have something else, but not telling you what that other thing is. But think about like if you're on the other side. I'm, try- I'm trying to. Like I'm not trying to make this a gender play. Well, but... okay. But that's, that's sort of what I'm interested in yeah. is like, okay, so like obviously I'm bringing up like that from like a gendered perspective and right. I brought up a, a gendered story the the story of the Cunning Ast executive is also sort of a story about like gender yeah, and totally. sexuality so yeah. it seems like there's some sort of a like fault line along gender and sexuality right. and stuff like that like right. not if I look at all of the controversial stories that have caused a controversy gender and sexuality are like at the heart of almost all of them yeah it's it's hard it's hard <laughs> <laughs> So it's hard. So I'm that I actually hadn't really like I'm sort of unpacking this in real time. Why are those stories where the stuff breaks down, and how do you sort of construct the ethical framework around those lines? That's a huge question. Absolutely, <laughs> we'll have you back on part two. <laughs> um, women figure into everything I do, right? And like everything I do is like from the perspective of like justice for women, yeah. Like, that's what I think about, like, 24-7, so... How much do you need to know to feel like you're, like, comfortable publishing in a situation like that? Um, I mean, you need to know a lot. Like, yeah. you need to know a lot. And, like, for that story, we knew a lot. Yeah. It was all off the record, like, deeply, deeply off the record. Yeah. And, you know, we had many, many tips, like, tips from very high profile people who were like this is true do those tips come in like from that gawker box or are they like sometimes sometimes and sometimes they come straight to reporters yeah how do you sort through a bunch of tips and whispers and sort of uh, separate the wheat from the chaff i mean the tip inbox was like you know a super amazing amazing place yes like almost every great story came in through the tips inbox. What kind of a person tips off Gawker? <laughs> like, like a crazy person who's also like semi media savvy. Right. That's what I was thinking. You right. have to find Gawker. Like you have to sort of know Gawker exists right. to be a Gawker tipster. And you like you also know that like if you're gonna go to Gawker, like you're gonna get a lot of exposure. Yeah. But you also might get screwed over as like editors of of Gawker have done to sources before. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it almost equally likely that the person who is the tipster will become the subject of the story than the tip itself? Yeah, definitely. Because the first question is, where are you getting all of this stuff? A tip that becomes a story, what does it like sound like as a tip? Like one tip we got was like, I'm pretty sure this person is plagiarizing and like, Mm. here are some examples. Mm. And then we looked at all this person's articles and we're like, yep, he's plagiarizing. And we're like, great tip, great (laughs) tip. And in the case of like that married media executive story, those were, there were emails. So it wasn't even like there was already evidence attached to it. He sent, the escort sent in like screenshots of their texts. Right. And we were like, well, all right, we'll look into this. When that tip is coming in from a, like, escort who is also sort of, like, extorting, like, Mm -hmm. it's almost like he's kind of extorting him both both ways, like, you're extorting through the media and through email, like... Like, how do you deal with someone like that where you're like, well, this is an interesting story, but this guy is not in the right? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, that wasn't dealt with Yeah. in in a fair manner. And that was sort of the spark that ended your tenure at Gawker. Yes. I mean, after that, Nick, uh, you know, decided Gawker needed to be 20% nicer. um, uh, And I took a buyout and... Because I was not twenty percent nicer, yeah. <laughs> so yes, that was the end of my tenure at Gawker. Did you consider becoming nicer? 
Um, I don't even just mean in the context of Gawker, <laughs> just like in general. Have you like, like, were you already locked into the, yeah, the not going to fit into the nice regime? Identity? Yeah, like I've been getting like harassed on the internet since I was 21. Like, yeah. So it's like nothing new. Yeah. For me to be like given shit and I like really don't it doesn't really bother me. So Is there like a, a cumulative weight to all that shit over the years? Like do you, do you does it wash off for you or do you have to carry it around in a sack? It's like an armor. Yeah. So it dries. Yeah, it dries. It's it's impermeable. Genius was your next job after Gawker? Uh, I was actually at Cosmopolitan for four months, which I was like did not know that. Yeah, it was a super fun like field trip. What were you doing at Cosmopolitan? I was uh, the executive editor of the website. Hmm. You're now at uh, Genius. Yes. For people who, who listen to the show who are not, I think most people are familiar at least with sort of the origins of Rap Genius sure. as mm-hmm. a like lyrics annotation mm-hmm. site. Mm-hmm. But tell us a little bit about sort of how Genius is now branching out to be needing to employ someone sure, like you. Sure, sure. Well, about a year ago, um, some of the very smart engineers at Genius created a tool called the Web Annotator, which lets you annotate any web page on the yeah. internet. And some of the stuff was kind of already happening with people like copying and pasting in like political speeches and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's sort of a backdoor yeah, way to do onto it. Onto Genius.com. They didn't really know like what they wanted to do with the tool. And then like they reached out to me like last fall and, you know, they were like, we're thinking about what we want to do with this web annotator. Like we want, you know, they had like this platform called News Genius and, you know, they were trying to come up with a vision for it. And at first I was like, this is, you know, interesting, like annotating news stories. Like what can we do with this? And like, You know, at Gawker, I had done, like, a lot of media criticism, which I love doing. Yeah. And it's, like, a totally rarefied field. Sort of invented by Gawker, (laughs) almost, or at least the, like, way it kind of works now. Right. I mean, like, no one reads it except media people, but that's, like, a very special audience. So, um... Genius and I just began talking about like what we would do with News Genius and the annotator. And I was like, well, what if I annotate news articles and like use it as a tool for media criticism? Which makes a lot of sense because I feel like a lot of the trouble actually that places like Gawker and other places have run into over time is kind of like articles that are copy and pasted out of other articles into this article so that they can be commented upon. And there's a certain elegance to retaining the original web page while you annotate it. Right. And, like, writing a blog post, it gets old and, like, (laughs) (laughs) writing is so – I just – I hate writing. Really? Um, And, uh, you know, you can, like, engage with text on Twitter. You can do it, like, on Facebook. But it's not, like – it's just cool how you can go, like, inside the page – yeah. With with the annotator. So I was like, this could actually, this this is cool. This could work. So, What is the difference in sort of working directly on the text rather than sort of republishing? Like what have you found with that as an experience of, of as a way to criticize media? It makes the experience like a lot easier. And uh-huh. It's more kind of stream of consciousness yeah. in a way. It's kind of humbling in that I'm like, well, I have, like, the entire internet before me, and, like, I don't know anything about, like, so much, but I'm going to, like, work on what I really know and then, like, ask smart people to do the other things. I wonder how you, like, avoid the pitfall of, like, I feel like a lot of media criticism, like, you kind of only hear about the media when it's fucking up. Right. Do people want to read a bunch of, like, the worst articles annotated for their failures? Yes. I think they do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because, like, the media is really – it's really bad and, like, no one, like, does – like, there are media critics, but there are no – there's no – like, who is watching, like, journalists every day and, yep. like, what – like, there are so many, like, shitty articles and, like – the Post and the Times and that are just, like, totally unchecked. Yeah. And they're just, like, really sexist or... It's almost like there needs to be, like, a public editor for the entire internet instead of the New York Times. Right, right. No, for sure. And, like, Margaret Sullivan can't do it all. Right. I actually really like 
Margaret Sullivan because she's I actually like what reading about someone like internally looking into something they did within a company and are like, yeah, we kind of fucked up here yeah, or like that. Sure. But for most institutions kind of don't have the like courage to do that right. internally. So I think there is that role. But like who's the audience for that stuff? Is it just journalists or is there actually like a layperson audience for that kind of criticism? I think there there's definitely a layperson audience and I think like especially with like younger people mm-hmm. who aren't like reading the big dailies necessarily, like they, you know, automatically question authority. Yeah. And so they like are looking for holes in things and Yeah. You know, there are so many like questionable news sites now and it's like are these good like is buzzfeed's news legitimate like is it trustworthy like i think i always people are horrible like given given the like free reign to comment on the internet right all i've seen is atrocities yeah like and i've seen i've seen it like at the lowest level and i've seen it at the highest level so now you're kind of engaging in being like the master commenter in a way is being your job. Are you able to find other people who are not like horrible to comment alongside you? Yeah. I mean, that's what has been like super reassuring is that the people who like come to use the annotator are like, number one, they're literate. Yeah. They, They write in full sentences and like they know what they're talking about and like they're very nice and thoughtful. Yeah. And like, you know, I read pretty much every annotation that comes in mm-hmm. and like I'm like, wow, like these are these are pretty good. Like these are real people. They're not like Obama killed my baby 44. <laughs> Do you think it's better at the stage you're at now with Genius because it's kind of smaller and it's like a sort of early adopter pool of co- commenters? It's not that small. Like eight thousand people have the Chrome extension. What is the stuff that actually does merit annotation and comment? Like what works? I mean, it's really, it's actually really interesting because, like, when I annotate something, like other people will flock to it. So it's kind of like leading by example. Yeah. So that's like kind of what my role has been, like, for the last two months. It's like I'm just going to annotate like consistently, like every day. Yeah. And then like the community of annotators who's who are very active on the site like will follow suit and like engage in the discussion and like mm-hmm. other staffers at Genius and also like other journalists I brought to the site uh, will like join the conversation. Right. Every day I wake up and I read the papers and I'm yeah. like, hmm. And are you looking? What are we going to annotate today? Yeah. Like what are you looking for when you're reading like, the paper? Anything that pisses me off. <laughs> okay. So like that's an interesting like prompt. Like what is what pisses you off evolving over time or is it a static quality it's uh i mean i wish it was evolving but it's still like it's kind of sad that it's remaining the same it's like all it's always woody allen (laughs) just keeps coming back to woody allen i've actually found myself really like into writing about sports like Mm. sports sections are actually the most fertile ground for me for annotation because they write about like women so like terribly they're like he had a great pitching arm, and he also used it to beat his girlfriend. <laughs> and it's like, what the hell are you doing? You're, this is really bad. Does that mean you're, like, sitting on, like, all sorts of, like, regional newspapers, like, reading their sports section yeah, looking like, for sexism? I mean, it's, like, in the Times, in the in the Washington Post. Like, it's, it's, like, huge papers that are doing this. It's like, do you have editors? Have you met a woman? Caring about that topic. For a period of years, do you see any evolution? My hope is that they'll read these annotations. Yes. I, sometimes I tweet yeah. them at them, or I follow them on Twitter to intimidate them. Genius is like a startup. It is a startup, yes. With like a beautiful like office and yes. like venture capital funding and all yes. of this stuff, and it's like you're like in this like big glass and steel machine, mm-hmm. like calling out. Um, sports writers for their like laden sexism like how are you regarded internally like when when someone from genius who's like me i'm just like the biggest rap annotator and you're like i've just been calling out sexism and sports sections all more like what do they think of you we're we're all good like we're all we're all you know they're teaching me about rap 
Like, I'm learning about Drake. Yeah. Like, who is Drake? I don't know. Like, I'm learning. You didn't know who Drake was well, until you got the job? like, I vaguely knew. But, you know, I'm, you know, what is music? I don't know. I have, like, one album really? on my phone. It's Justin Bieber. <laughs> um, and, like, I'm teaching them about, you know, how the media is bad. It's a really good, like, give and take relationship. If you were working at Gawker and I was like, rap genius or genius, you'd be like, all right, we're going to make fun of these dudes. Like, <laughs> I, like I don't even have to, like, I'll, I, we're sitting at a computer yeah. here. I don't, I haven't actually looked for this, but I'm pretty sure there is a Gawker article from your oh, tenure yeah. Yeah. ripping on yeah, yeah, the guys yeah. who run there genius. Is, there is no love for genius, but, you know, at Gawker, there's no love for anyone outside of Gawker. There's right. only love for those inside Gawker. But I guess I'm curious, does that, like, like when you first meet those guys who are running Genius, are they like, "Oh, you from Gawker? Oh, let me like pull out this file of like you and no, Sly, like, no, no, like the skin is thick enough." No, that- like I respect them so much because they're like, "We love Gawker and like we really love like your writing and like yeah, we want you to do that here." And I'm just like, "Oh my god!" Like I am like thankful for this opportunity. Like I like. How many more chances am I going to have? <laughs> like, I'm happy to do this for yeah. as long as you want me to. I hope forever. Yeah. And your role now is kind of of the Uber comment. You're like the Uber annotator. You know, I'm the annotator in residence, and I'm also forming, like, partnerships with other media organizations mm-hmm. and bringing, like, other people in to annotate. So getting people to use the tool, increasing awareness of the tool, we have like a blog where we feature annotations every day. Yeah. It's multifaceted. All right. So assuming that you don't actually do that for the rest of your life, <laughs> like what, where do you see going? I mean, you, you're, you've been on a pretty crazy roller coaster yeah. f- to get here. Yeah. What, what, what else do you want to do? That's a, a really good question. I try not to ever plan ahead or think about the future because you just never know when – you know, you're not going to have a job. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way that you deal with the sort of instability in the industry. Right, right. It's like, am I going to have a new job every year? Yeah. Maybe. Like, maybe my next job will be on an oil rig. You heard that here first. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I think you're going to succeed at uh, whatever it is. So. Uh, Thank you. It's very nice. (laughs) (laughs) If someone wanted to go and check out these annotations, what like where 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 can they go? News.genius.com. And that was the Long Forum Podcast. Thank you very much to Leah Finnegan. Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, our intern, Courtney Harrell, my co-hosts, Max Linsky, Evan Ratliff, our wonderful sponsors, MailChimp, Audible, Squarespace, and wait, I have one more to tell you about, and that's Trunk Club. They make it easy to look your best in clothes that fit you perfectly, handpicked by your own personal stylist for free with Trunk Club. That's right. Your own stylist picks out clothes. They send them to you. You keep them if you like to. Otherwise, no obligation. It's not a subscription service. There's no monthly fee. The stylist is free. Shipping's free. Everything is pretty much ready to go for you. So get started today at trunkclub.com slash longform. You will be supporting this show and upgrading your wardrobe. Thanks, Trunk Club. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.